We've all been raised on television to believe that one day we'd all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars. But we won't. We're slowly learning that fact. And we're very, very pissed off. There we go. Oh, boy. Ladies and gentlemen, we're doing it again. Another podcast. You know, folks, I really tried to be upbeat. Uh, The last podcast failed. Uh, Undaunted. No, I'll be honest. A little daunted. Daunted. Daunt-ish. We enter this podcast where I try to be more upbeat because there's so much negativity in the world. I'm going to try yet again to be upbeat, but it is difficult. And we'll get to that in just a second uh, in the news segment. Ladies and gentlemen, on all the ships at sea. Oh, gosh. I'm uh, I, Just to show you how bad it's getting, I am drinking. It's a Monday, and I'm doing this at night. But, okay, so good news. Uh, if you heard uh, last episode, I talked about my pain belt. I'd say it is really quite good at this point. Um, What I have figured out is that it seemed to be uh, that I was driving my feet um, into the floor as I played video games in the office. So my answer to this is, well, cut down on on the gaming in the office. And when I do game, stretch out. Don't Drill your feet into the floor, put them up on something, relax. It's just a game. No, big, no, it's not just a game. It is life and death. It's okay. Yes. Uh, it's so I, I think I've got it under control. I'm really quite, uh, pleased with the progress. So now let's get to the root of the trouble. Why, why are things bad at this moment? For you kids who are listening to this in the future, the problem that's going on right now is, uh, lovely wife Miriam said, I want to go run the Paris Marathon. And I said, all right. Yeah, you go do that. You go. You go do that. What? Huh? Yeah, and, and so she did. And she's, and she's in Paris right now. Problem being, one of two volcanoes uh, that are in Iceland erupted and shot a bunch of ash into the air. The ash cloud started to drift uh, southerly, southern, southeasterly. Uh, and uh, app- apparently, when planes try to fly through the ash, it clogs up the engines, and then they stop working, and then the plane goes into the ocean. So, not since 9-11-2001 have we seen a mass grounding of air travel. And it's been grounded. Uh, today is Monday. So, uh, it's been, uh, let's see, it started on Thursday that th- the volcano started erupting. They shut down traffic. Uh, we will see if Miriam can get out. I have uh, a ticket for her to leave on Wednesday. So, we'll see if she's able to get out. Uh, if they're even letting uh, air traffic go, they're kind of sort of letting air traffic out now, but it's pretty limited and only during certain times of the day and all this stuff. So we'll see. Okay, so this has been a huge bummer, you know, because 
she planned the trip and, and she wanted to be there for X number of days. And, you know, she's a lot like me, which is why we're still married. Isn't that funny? Miriam and I both feel the same way about travel, which is I like to go places. I like to see things. But at some point, I'm ready to go home. Like, I've seen a bunch, but I really miss my my stuff. I miss my bed. I miss my animals. I miss my routine. I miss all of that. And she's feeling it, definitely. So, I've we've been Skyping. We've been tweeting. No, we haven't been tweeting. We've been Facebooking. But, uh, yeah, it's it's not been good. And, of course, I miss her deeply, so I can't wait till she comes home. There must be positives to this, and yes, I believe there are. So, for for one, I've been watching um, movies on demand from Netflix, uh, movies um, that I know she would never want to see, and uh, I have two really great, solid recommendations for all y'all. And oh, and by the way, you can now watch Netflix movies on demand from. Any gaming console, so the Nintendo Wii, uh, Sony's PS3, Microsoft's Xbox, they all have it available. So I these movies I watched from my Wii. Wii. And uh, so Moon. Moon is an interesting movie. It's a very low-budget movie. It's only got one person in it, uh, Sam Rockwell. And by the way, Sam Rockwell, damn fine actor. Uh, I'm, I am gonna hazard a guess to say he is the next Gary Oldman. And, uh, so he's in this movie, Moon. So it's a little confusing at first because you, you can't really figure out where this movie is going. But after I'd say the first 20 minutes, it does sort of set its course. And then at that point, it gets, it gets quite good. And Sam Rockwell is awesome. So just watch it. That and the documentary, uh, King of Kong, Fistful of Quarters, about two dudes who are trying to lay claim to the Donkey Kong high score. Now, kids, <clears throat> let me explain something about it. Okay, no, I'm sorry. I'm just screwing with you. I'm not going to explain Donkey Kong and, and, um, and quarter arcades. Uh, oh my God. I do, though, have to talk about uh, about arcades for just a second, because um, as you know, I have been going to the batting cages at Malibu Grand Prix quite a bit, and uh, in order to get to the batting cages, you have to walk through the arcade. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, uh, what is wrong with the state of arcade games? Oh my god, it is pitiful. Like, they don't even have real arcade games anymore. It's all like... Deal or No Deal, not even kidding, Deal or No Deal is an arcade game that you can play. And they have Guitar Hero. Well, why would I go there to Golfland or, oh wow, nice, or Malibu Grand Prix to play Guitar Hero when I can play it in my house? Why would I play it there? It, it is so amazingly sad. That and the weirdo single dudes that hang out in the arcade in the middle of the day. Really? I I know, I know you're not necessarily, like, like, you don't have a child uh, bound and gagged in your trunk right now, but I'm guessing you're gonna very soon. 
So uh, I'd love to hang out and stalk you for the rest of the day just to make sure that isn't going to happen. But, you know, I just uh, I just was uh, on my way to Costco and I thought, oh, you know, I'll hit up the batting cages. So here I am. So there are my two film recommendations, Moon, King of Kong. And what's amazing about King of Kong is this is a topic that I cannot imagine people making a documentary on. It's like, really? Guys playing for an arcade score? Okay. But they make it interesting. So really, I think the drama, and and if there is a hero in this, it is the documentarians. It isn't, you know, one person versus another. It's really like, holy shit, you made a movie of this? This is awesome that you you found material in this. This is this is amazing. It's amazing. So uh, yeah, I, I highly recommend uh, both of those. First, before we get into the stories, let's talk a little bit about story etiquette. Now, what I'm what I mean by this is you're at a party. A dude is saying, "Oh yes, this reminds me of a story." There are a couple of things to keep in mind as the story listener. When the man finishes his story, do not instantly call bullshit on the story. I know the desire is strong because he's had the spotlight and now you want the spotlight. No. Let him have the spotlight, right? Be secure enough in your own manness or womanness to say, it's an amazing world. Amazing things happen all the time. Unless you have empirical evidence. You know, innocent until proven guilty. Cut me some slack, G. As a storyteller, here's a piece of etiquette. Don't declare your story interesting. Oh, here's an interesting story. See, now now you got me thinking. Now you got me like, really? Now I'm judging. You put me in the judgy seat. And I'm just like, really? Really? Is this story interesting? I don't know. Uh... Well, you told me about how you got in a car and you missed your keys and then you you had to go back and look for your wife. No, already this story is not interesting. I don't care where it's going to go. I'm already bored. Now, if you're a stand-up comedian, don't say true story before you tell a story. It is irrelevant, right? Because either we're with you or we're not. You saying true story isn't going to help your case any, and it's just so overplayed and so overused, um, it just it just turns awful. Uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to do a podcast of just stories is because I just got done finishing uh, Paul Schaefer's autobiography, and all I really want from these autobiographies from celebrities is just crazy stories, right? That's it. I don't want to know about where you were born or how you were raised, about your parents, about your siblings. I don't care. Unless there is certain moments that completely defined and shaped you as a child, it does not matter. And I was led to believe Paul Schaefer's book was going to be just that. Uh, even the title of the book is like, you know, Swingin' Hollywood Stories. And it's just like, yeah, that sounds awesome. The guy, the dude, you know, he's played with every big musician. He, that must, he just must have a million of them. No, it's a lot of childhood stuff. And it's like, he played a dramatic uh, thing at, uh, at uh, some ceremony. And Oh, by the way, 
I don't know if this is just me. Did did we all know Paul Schaefer was Jewish? Like, I had no idea, right? And I have been a huge, I wouldn't say a huge Schaefer fan, but I've been a Schaefer fan for quite a while, right? Like, I remember when he was on Saturday Night Live. I remember when he was on uh, Letterman, uh, NBC, and it was just that four-piece band and not the uh, CBS Orchestra. No, I mean, it was, I, I've, I've heard this man talk many times, never knew he was Jewish, I read his autobiography, he mentions it on, like, every other page. Maybe he's just pent up, right? Like, he's like, damn it, I want, I keep wanting to bring this up on Letterman. Like, he does this whole tribute to Cher uh, every Christmas because... There's this whole story, but he's got, um, just look it up on the internet. Um, but it's basically Cher singing, um, Silent Night and he does his Cher impression. And it has no, no mention of like, I realize I'm Jewish. We celebrated Hanukkah, but the Christmas, the Sonny and Cher Christmas special was still important to me. No mention of that. And yet it, you know, it, he's obsessed with his Jewishness in this book. So, I don't know. I don't know if it's just me. Uh, you know, maybe I, I missed something. I don't know. Maybe he's overcompensating now, now that he gets to be out of the Jewish closet. So, in a way, I'm trying to fulfill that dream of the person who has the autobiography that's just nothing but showbiz stories. That's all I want, is just... The stories. And so maybe I can do a couple of episodes of the podcast that are just stories. And uh, in that sense, you know, there is no greater truth. There's no higher meaning. It's just funny stories. All right. So let's start talking about some stories here. Uh, So even though Miriam is still trapped in uh, France, depending on when you listen to this and when I actually post it, um, this is not, uh, this is one of the reasons why I did not go with her to Francis because we had already been. And, uh, you know, she's over there running the marathon. And I, I was like, well, you know, I've already been, um, you know, I, I certainly don't want to spend a bunch of time doing marathon stuff. So I'll just sit this one out. You know, you've got another friend who wants to go with you. You won't be traveling alone. So our first trip, though, uh, we did all the touristy stuff. And I tell you, I love myself an audio tour, uh, especially because I, I don't I can't stand for very long. So I uh, I need to sit down a lot. And uh, the audio tour is great for that because you can sit across the room from a painting, you know, in big, big paintings, especially in the Louvre. Uh, and you can see it just fine. And then the audio tour says, yes, now look to the left. There you will see the artist's representation of his mother in a clamshell. You know, the one thing about these audio tours, though, that really kind of bugs me is they talk about especially like, well, like history and religion as if everybody knows it all, right? And... I don't know who they think are listening to this, especially people who go to the Louvre. Like, there's people from Muslim countries who are coming who don't know Catholicism, and they're like, and then this is how uh, Napoleon commissioned this painting so he could be mirrored in the resurrection of the Day of Sacrament. And then they just leave it at that. They don't They don't say anything. Or, or, or also, and another Napoleonic thing, so... 
Like Napoleon, French history is crazy because it's like Napoleon came in and then they threw him out and then they had kings and then they didn't like them. So they got Napoleon back, but they don't bother to explain any of this while you're listening on the audio tour. They're just like, and here is a Napoleon again. There you go. Thank you. By the way, that is not supposed to be a French accent. I just wanted to do some sort of voice. Thank you. So anyway, so we're we're getting the audio tour uh, at at uh, the Louvre, and um, I don't know. I I must have pointed to the sign and you know said like two or something like that, and uh, they just sort of stare at me, and I'm staring at them, and then Miriam looks at me and she goes, "What what language do you want?" And I was like, "Oh right, oh sorry, uh, yes, no, uh, we're we're we 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 would like the English, please." And they're like, okay. And then, of course, they spoke English just fine. And they're like, here you go. And they give us the audio tour. So we're off. So then um, we get out into more rural France and we wind up at the Chateau at Chenonceau. Great photo opportunities there. And uh, I, of course, audio tour. You know, this was, this was far into our Paris trip. I love getting the audio tour. I put on the audio. I, I go up to the woman. Uh, where they have the audio audio guides, and I, I say two, and she says something to me. I'm not really sure what it is, and uh, I just I, I'm I'm confused because she's speaking in French, and and I'm just like, oh, I don't know what that is. And then I'm remembering back to the Louvre, and I'm like, oh, right, um, I forgot to say what language I want this in. And I just look at her in a panic because I'm just trying to been processing what what I'm supposed to say, and I just look at her and I go. English! And then she's kind of confused and she goes, uh, eh, could I have your ID to hold for security? Again, not supposed to be a French accent. And I felt so bad because I was just like, oh my God, here I've just yelled English at this poor woman at like the top of my lungs because I got all freaked out. And here she thinks I'm just like this ugly American who's just demanding, damn it, woman, speak English! Oh, God. <laughs> I should have tracked her down and just been like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. But by the end of the, of course, you know, I was just like, oh, my God, she must think I'm the biggest ass. So let's get to one of the longer stories. Uh, I know I've already covered the story about uh, how I got on the Howard Stern show. Let's back up and uh, get to another contest that I won. Uh, so... In uh, 1997, um, when Mad TV was in its, I think, second year, uh, well, so in, in season one, they had uh, one one or two really popular sketches, and one of them was Cabana Chat. And if you have not seen it, because they don't do it anymore, well, actually, Mad TV is not on the air anymore. Um, it, the, I, the premise of Cabana Chat is... Uh, it is an old woman with leathery skin who sits by the pool and does sort of her TV show by the pool. Uh, and she has this character, Pool Boy, who comes out and he's dumb as a rock, but she likes the way he looks. And so she just makes him do stuff. And she talks about sex and whatnot. So anyway, that's the, that's the sketch. So at the end of season one, Brian Callen leaves the show for no, we couldn't really figure out, like, we even asked the people at Mad TV, like, why did he leave? 
And they were like, well, I don't know. He had some girlfriend who was going to school back east and he didn't want to be without her. And so I don't know. I don't know. Nobody knows. Whatever. So who cares? Better for me. He left. So it was like their most popular sketch and they didn't want to not do it. And, um, the, the ratings for Mad TV were not great. Um, they, you know, they were going up against Saturday Night Live and it was, which is a, you know, enormous competition, uh, Saturday Night Live. And really, Saturday, you know, it's, it was Saturday Night Live owned Saturday. So anyway, so they wanted to keep doing this sketch. And they were looking to boost up their ratings. So they said, well, I'll tell you what, why don't we just have a contest to see who can be pool boy for a day? And, uh, you know, it'll generate some hype. We'll show, you know, uh, finalists on the show. We'll do all this stuff. It'll be great. And it'll boost our ratings. And, uh, and we won't have to give up the sketch, uh, premise. So they put out this thing. Hey, you know, we want you to send in your videotapes three minutes or less. On the audition tape, you had to dance in a Speedo. So, I, of course, don't own a Speedo. I mean, what, Jesus, what, what, what man not on a swim team owns a Speedo? If you're a professional competitive swimmer, you probably have a closet full of them. Michael Phelps probably has a whole Speedo closet. Uh, but, of course, you know, I don't have one. I'm just ridiculous. Uh, and certainly with this body, I mean, you know. Uh, that's not going to happen. So I go out to, um, I go out to, uh, I think I probably went to like any, oh, I think there was a Speedo store actually in the mall. Um, it was either that or I went to anything but water, which is a great name because I just assumed it would just be enema bags, anything but water. But no, sadly enough, it was all just swim stuff. Um, that that joke and um, my other favorite mall joke is uh, there's a uh, a teeny bopper store in the mall called Wet Seal, and I would walk by and I would do like one of those Peter Griffin sort of oh that's what it looks like inside a Wet Seal. Huh. I just assumed it would be more like herring heads and fish guts, but big hoop earrings. Okay, that's a surprise, but all right. Uh, but so anyway, so I, I go to the Speedo store. Um, I, there, I tried on a whole bunch of Speedos. I think the only one that fit was like a boy's large, like all the man sizes were all just too big. Like there's no way I could. And, oh, and the other thing is, is you not only have to wear a Speedo on the entry tape that you send in. Oh, good old videotapes. How we hate you. Uh, but uh, you have to dance in the Speedo. So I was like, okay, if, I, if, I, if this Speedo's too big, this thing's just going to fall right off of me. And uh, so, so um, I get the boys large. And I tell you, I feel a little emasculated. Um, it was all tight everywhere. Uh, but it, at least it didn't move, uh, which was fine. And it was ridiculous because it was like, I, I, you know, most of the Speedos, the men's Speedos were all like, you know, solid blue, solid red, uh, you know, very like, I mean, as dignified as you can look in a Speedo, which is not very much. Uh, but, the, but I wanted, of course, the one that really, you know, jumped out at you. So I got, uh, you know, the, it was like this crazy rainbow striped uh, Speedo thing. My plan was just to keep it short. Like, I think they gave me to like either three or five minutes. And I was like, 
what am I going to do? I mean, they, honestly, the guy who plays Pool Boy on the show, I don't even think is on from for five minutes. Uh, you know, he says like two lines top. So I was just like, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to say something dopey because that's the character. He says dumb things. So I'm going to say a dumb thing and then I'm going to dance. And, uh, and that's it. So I get on. So even more, you know, a few more weeks goes by. I finally get the call. I've won. I'm going to be on the show. Okay. So the crazy part about this is, is all I know is at this point, I have won the contest, right? So they, I don't know what I'm going to be doing. I, so they just fly me in there and, and we show up and then they're like, oh yeah, here are your lines. I'm like, lines? I get to have lines? I mean, that's great. I get to have lines, but I'm just sort of thinking like, well, why didn't you give me these like two or three days ago when you called me up and told me I won? What, you know, couldn't you fax them to me or something? And it was just amazing how you just sort of, you know, not planned so much of this was, at least on my end. I, I don't know. Maybe they had way more confidence in me than I did. I, I mean, really, they shouldn't have because I was just some idiot who won a contest. I mean, of all things, uh, you know, I'm the least of, I should, I should be their greatest concern because they're just like, well, he's an idiot. He's just going to do something stupid. But in retrospect, I think it might have been that they had Anna Nicole Smith on their show. And she was, I, I don't want to say a handful because she was, she was quite sedate. Uh, when I met her. I mean, she was very nice, uh, you know, very soft-spoken. In fact, she was so soft-spoken that uh, after the show was over, there was talk that they might actually have to um, subtitle what she was saying because she was so quiet. But they didn't do it. They wound up boosting her levels enough so uh, she could be heard. But they really made sure she was everywhere she was supposed to be. So, you know, they they had a production assistant. They sent her out to pick her up, to drive her in, to sit with her, to make sure her dog had what it needed. Like, they really locked her down. And I don't know, because this is way before her reality show was out. So I don't know how the word gets out. I don't know if that's something her, their management tells her them or that's something they've just heard around that she can be a little spacey at times, maybe. Uh, but, you know, and certainly once the reality show came out, it was like very obvious how sort of yeah, kind of maybe not the most dependable person in the world she was. So just a couple of other observations that happened while we were there. Uh, Will Sasso, who was on the show at the time, he, <laughs> he loved uh, to go into the, I think it was the, either wardrobe or makeup, and write P-I-N on post-it notes and stick them up all over the place. And um, I, I said, what is that? to one of like the wardrobe people and they were like, Oh, it's, it's something Will likes to do. And I said, why does it say P I N on all of them? She's like, post it note. So he's labeling post it note with post it note. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and they were everywhere. There was just like any flat surface had a post it note with P I N written on it. The other big highlight uh, uh, to this 
episode of Mad TV is that they, they tape two at a time. And it is a long night because it winds up being like four hours. And the audience, they start taping at like seven and it winds up going to like 11, yeah, like 11. And uh, yeah, it's a long, long night. Um, and, but the cool thing was is not on my episode, but uh, the other episode that they were taping that night was with Jerry Springer. And uh, let me say, man, it was a good week to be there because it got Anna Nicole Smith and Jerry Springer. And he was great. He, he let them do whatever they wanted to him. You know, he he would just do these things and make fun of himself. But I never once saw him smile. I mean, he was just deadpan. You know, he would sit there. I, you know, he, I would stand next to him while he was looking at the monitors in rehearsal. And then they would do these really great sketches. And he would just stand there, nod his head. Mm-hmm. And so the the only really... I should say everybody who was there was insanely nice. Um, uh, Mary Shear, who played uh, Dixie Wetsworth, the woman who ran Cabana Chat, uh, she just had a baby and like Nicole Sullivan would come over and like pick the baby up and like hold her while Mary was doing her thing. It was just like you expected to see like all the Hollywood infighting stories that you had ever heard, but no, none of that. Um, the only time I felt like, you know, maybe I had screwed up or something, um, I, we were doing the, the, the thing. And then uh, somebody, well, the director or somebody comes over to me and she said, uh, well, okay, so, uh, you know, we'll do this and this and then you'll dance. And then um, I said, well, do you have any, like, should I dance in any kind of particular way? And then Mary Shear from behind me goes, damn it, Alan, just do it like you did it on the tape. That's what got you the gig. And I was like, oh, shit, I'm in trouble. And then I realized, oh, okay, no, she's just fucking with me. That's fine. So, uh, we do the whole thing. It goes great. Oh, and by the way, this is the other, this is the other thing that, that irritated me was, um, oh yeah, that was the other thing. Everybody, everybody knew who I was. Like all the cast, um, everybody who worked on the show, they all knew who I was the minute I walked on the set. Right. Like I remember, um, Phil Lamar was leaving to go somewhere and he stopped and he was like, Hey, Alan, congratulations on winning. And I was just like, Whoa, these people are crazy nice. Um, and it was cool too because we got to go to the after party that they had of, I can't even remember where. So we get to the after party and, um, and we, you know, we, we stay up till like two o'clock in the morning and we're like, Okay, well, I guess we'll just get a cab and go home. So we go down to the street. And this is before cell phones. So there's no like, oh, I'll just get on a cell phone and, and call a cab. It was just like, well, we just figured, oh, it's Los Angeles. It's no big deal. There are cabs all the time. Well, not in this section. Uh, you know, we were not in the hip happening nightlife section of LA. We were in kind of more like the businessy, Gower Street studio section where the cabs dry up at some point. And Nicole Sullivan sees us on the on the on the street, and she was like, "Oh, where where are you staying?" And we said, "Oh, we're over at the um, oh uh, across the street from Beverly Center at uh, at the the French uh, hotel." And she's like, "Oh, yeah, yeah, I know that." And puts us right in her in her uh, jeep looking thing and drives us off. And and I was like, "Wow, Nicole Sullivan's giving us a ride home. This is awesome." But um, so we're we're driving there uh, back to our hotel. 
And uh, before I was on Mad TV, people knew I had won. And so they kept, you know, anything funny that would happen, they would say, oh, yeah, you can use that. You can use that on the show. That'll be great. And then it's like, yeah, no, fellas, I'm just, you know, doing a brief appearance. I'm not writing a sketch for myself. It's just I don't have that kind of pull. And so I, knowing this going in, I said to Nicole Sullivan, I was like, hey, dude, you, you're actually on the show. So people must pitch you sketch ideas all the time. She's like, please, are you kidding me? I, I hang out with my, with my dad and I tell him, look, you get three pitches. Don't, no more than that. Once you give me your three, you're done. I, I got to spend Easter in peace. And she says, they're always way outside the mad tv demographic i mean the mad tv demographic is like you know 18 to 26 and every sketch he's like all right three lawyers in her in a room and she's like no we're not doing that oh and i forgot to mention uh we got to meet uh bodyguard steve from uh from jerry springer show he was there uh, as part of one of the jerry springer sketches and also a delightful person bodyguard steve but uh, in, in terms of drama, the most drama was involving my swimsuit uh, because the swimsuit that I had used to audition with, uh, I had actually returned to anything but water. And um, I think I actually rebought it again once I won the contest. And uh, so we get down there with the Speedo and they're like, oh, no, 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 no. you're not going to be wearing that Speedo. Uh, you're going to be wearing... This other Speedo, which this was ridiculous, like, French cut, super high on the sides, leopard print Speedo. And it could not have been smaller. Like, I was, I was kind, you know, it just, it keeps getting weirder and weirder. Like, you know, you're like, okay, I'm going to be on national TV. That's a little bit nerve wracking. Okay, I'm going to be in a Speedo. Okay, and I'm going to be dancing. Okay. And it's going to be a super tiny speedo. Okay. Like with everything, it just ratchets up the weirdness level. Um, and so this is the part that I don't understand. This is the same speedo that the other guy used to wear. I'm hoping they washed it. Uh, I'm dancing around in this and, uh, they're like, yeah, we can see too much of your penis. Not like it was leaking out the side. I mean, it was just like the thing was tight and you could see like definition in the Speedo. And so they're like, and this is like Friday at like four. Yeah, that's right. Because they did the dress rehearsals of Friday at like in the afternoon and then taping night was at seven. So there's this mad rush to go get me some sort of like, like athletic supporter to sort of smooth out my dick and make it less obvious. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, have you, this was a, a, a very popular sketch you had on your show. It's not like you just did this once. I mean, you did this like five or six times last year. Are you completely new to this? And it, so they had to go and again, had to get me the boys jock. Uh, and then because it was such a tiny speedo, they had to cut the speedo to match the size of the i mean they had to cut the 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 athletic supporter to to match the size of the speedo and i've got two women working on my my area here cutting with scissors also 
not comfortable with scissors near my junk. Now, here's the other thing. I would describe much of me in many ways as average. There is really no part of me that is exceptional in any way. I'm trying to be as vague as possible, but let's just say nothing about me is exceptional, completely average. So what in the world, like, did they completely forget about the other guy? Or was he smaller than average and it wasn't an issue? Did he tuck? Did he tape? What's going on? And it was like a big deal because like when we got done with rehearsal, it was already like four in the afternoon and, you know, we started taping at seven and uh, our sketch was early up front. So I think it was, you know, at, at the latest eight o'clock and there was like this mad rush to go to a, 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 a sporting goods store to get something that would hold me. So the funny bit about this all was, I mean, this was all designed to boost the ratings of the show, have a fun contest. And uh, at the after party, I asked the producers how many people entered the contest. And the answer was seven. That's right. Seven. And the number of people that entered the Howard Stern contest three years later was like 5,000. <laughs> And it was funny, too, because at the after party, one of the guys who came, who had entered the contest, who was friends with somebody who worked on the show, came by to give the producers the finger for not picking him. <laughs> and for those of you who haven't seen the bit I was in, uh, good luck finding it. It's, it's tough because uh, right after Anna Nicole Smith died, I think her lawyers went through and scrubbed YouTube uh, of everything that she was actually in. And I don't really want people knowing that I did this when I'm trying to get a job or trying to get people to treat me seriously. Um, there are, I, when I last job I had, there were people who saw it uh, because uh, Comedy Central for a while was running reruns of Mad TV in perpetuity. So there were people who saw it. And actually on my last day of that job, when we all got laid off, I showed it to a bunch of people. But I haven't put it on YouTube because I don't think uh, other employees need to see me running around in a Speedo. Another time where I felt like I was really in the moment was uh, we were in college, we were sitting around a table and uh, the imp only important thing to know about this story is that uh, Mike's mom is a psychologist or a psychotherapist or something like that. And we're sitting around the table and Dan, who is Jeremy's friend, uh, was thinking about going to college at San Francisco State. And he was up from Los Angeles to sort of, you know, check it out and see what it was like and what was the scene and everything. And I say to Dan... Um, so, Dan, what do you think of what do you think you're going to be studying when you come here? And Dan says, uh, "Yeah, because I'm 40 when I'm when I'm in college. Hey, I got my smoking jacket and my pipe. So, Dan, so I say, what do you feel? What do you think you're going to be studying? What's your major going to be? That's what I would have said. Hey, what, what's your major going to be? And uh, Dan says, "Oh, I think I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna get a. I think I'm gonna study what uh, what Mike's mom does." 
And I say, and before he even could get out the word does, I just had this thought in my head. I'm like, this is what I'm going to say. This is what I'm going to say. Wait till he's finished. Don't step on what he says. I got to wait. I'm going to get a degree in what Mike's mom does. And I said, really? I didn't know you could get a degree in fucking Mike's dad. I loved it. Ah, so great. So the last time I was unemployed, not this time, but the five years ago when I was unemployed, I said, well, I'll just, uh, I'll, I'll be an extra in movies. That'll be fun. And it was. I haven't done it this time around because they charge, the extra casting service now charges you to sign up with them. And the chances of getting any work with them is pretty slim these days. Not a whole lot of shooting going on in San Francisco. So I, I haven't done it this time. But back then, uh, there was an enormous casting call that went out for Patch Adams, and they had radio and TV and everything. And so I went down uh, to be an extra on the movie Patch Adams. By the way, don't see the movie. I'm even in the movie, and I haven't even seen it yet. I've just seen the, the one little bit that I am in. The big scene that they were shooting in San Francisco uh, for Patch Adams was the Meat Packers Convention. And this is where Patch Adams, who's the big rebel, crazy doctor, you know, kind of feels like every Robin Williams character is the I'm the nut in a conventional society character. Uh, and of course, Patch Adams, played by Robin Williams, goes to the Meat Packers Convention to prove that he can just become friends with everybody. And they got like, I don't know, a thousand people to be meat packers, uh, you know, dress up in like, because the movie's supposed to take place in, I think, the 70s at this point in his life. And we're all in like bad polyester with fake uh, sideburn, mutton chop sideburns and, and, you know, people sort of milling around. And as we were walking into this ridiculous 70s hotel in San Francisco, all filing in, this woman grabs me and pulls me aside and goes, we need you to be the hot dog. I was like, what? You, you need to be, we, we, we had a guy, he was supposed to be the hot dog, but you need to be the hot dog. And I was like, okay. So uh, I got pulled out of the line of the meat packers and uh, I became... I guess uh, at this Meat Packers convention, the way that Tom Shadiak, director of uh, uh, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, had envisioned it, that not only would there be a, f- a convention floor, like a typical, you know, like we think of conventions today with like booths and, um, you know, uh, vendors and all that, there would be mascots of the of the Packer convention. So there's a cleaver there's a steak, and then there's a hot dog. And the really bizarre thing was, originally, I guess that the the hot dog was supposed to be a woman, and then they said, no, that's too weird, so they ditched that idea. And then they got this other guy uh, who was even smaller than me, hard to imagine, and, and he was going to be in the hot dog suit. Now, the hot dog suit, mind you, idiotic, construction on this suit. I'm sorry if I'm you are the one who built this thing. You did a terrible job because I mean it looked good, but it was ridiculous because the thing weighed, I don't know, 10, 15 pounds, whatever, but it was all chicken wire and uh and like, you know, plaster. 
which which made it a way heavier than it needed to be but b the arm where it rests on your shoulders because you got to stick your hands out to hand out flyers and whatnot it just cut into your shoulders and i'm like did we not have foam rubber in the 70s is that the problem that we are so authentic to the era era that we have to have the most uncomfortable suits ever and it was funny because i met the guy who was supposed to be the hot dog and he was like yeah i couldn't do it i had back problems and i was like oh i was trying to make him feel better because i was like oh no this was awful you do not want to do this this is and it was it was it was pretty sucky now i'll let you in on the cleaver and the meat one was stupid the other was a bitch this is a little inside gossip i don't know which is which and if you're listening to this and you're the bitch maybe you can take solace in thinking that you're the stupid one uh because they were well one was just dumb and the other one was downright mean to me so there's a lot of sitting around when you're an extra there's a lot of sitting around in the movie business in general uh it's kind of crazy that they get you there in an insane time in the morning. Like, I think we all got there at like 8 a.m. or something like that. And then they would do stuff. They would, they, they didn't even start. The rest of the crew got there also at 8 a.m., which is idiotic because it's like, why? Because they're going to take at least two hours to set up a shot. It takes us half an hour to get into makeup and, you know, fake sideburns and bad polyester. And then what would he do? We sit around for an hour and a half and you've got a thousand people trapped in a ballroom for an hour and a half. Yeah, you're inviting trouble. I'm going to just say it right now. You're inviting trouble. So they finally get it set up and they're going to do the big crane shot of the aerial of the meatpackers convention. And uh, you know, they get all the mascots in place and they say, okay, hot dog, you're going to walk from there to there. And, and, you know, when we yell action, and I say, okay, great. And then they, they go action and I start walking and they have like two seconds into it. Cut, 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 cut. What? And then I hear over the megaphone, we can't see the hot dog. We can't see the hot dog. And I'm just like, I'm freaking out and i'm just thinking like oh my god am i doing something wrong and, blah, blah, blah. and they're like no, no no no, you did exactly right don't worry about it we just gotta you know move the camera a little bit and and uh you know adjust things a little bit so i was like Ugh. and then uh so they do it again and then you know they still can't see me and we gotta do it again and uh, and then um and then so finally uh they they they, they get it and they're happy with it so we spend all the first part of the day with these ridiculously long camera moves and tracking shots just to get the hot dog in the scene. I think they might have done one other with a close-up of uh, Robin Williams having uh, uh, an, um, an emotional moment with a cow. But I, I really like when they served us lunch. Uh, we got into this big line, and uh, one of the guys, one of the meat packers, I hear him talking behind me, and he goes, Well, you know what I call this? Hurry up and wait. Really, dude? Yeah, that's what you call it? That's funny because that's what everybody calls it. Hey, look at that. You know what I call that? A chair. So during lunch, this is where I really begin to hate. It's either the meat or the cleaver. I don't know. We all got jam-packed into this basement of uh, this building uh, where they where they served us food. And I was talking to them. And, and I don't know. I, I can't remember what I said. I rubbed them the wrong way or something. And she said something mean. And I was like, you know what? I'm out of here. I got to go get some fresh air. See you later. The 
the second half of the day, they're going to do all the close-ups down on the floor of Robin Williams walking through the crowd, making friends, and he gets to me, right? I'm, I get to have a big close-up with Robin Williams. And uh, so uh, the director, uh, you know, he comes over to me and he says, okay, uh, Robin Williams is going to say to you, hi, Frank, like I'm a Frankfurter, get it? And uh, you're going to roll your eyes like uh, you've heard this a million times before. And, uh, okay, ready, set, action. And uh, he does it. And he says, hi, Frank. And I roll my eyes. And the director says, cut. And then he comes over to me. And then basically, I'm not rolling my eyes the right way. And he spends like 30 seconds with me trying to get me to roll my eyes right. And apparently, I don't roll my eyes right. And I can't see myself and I can't see what I'm doing. So I have no idea, but I certainly feel like I'm rolling my eyes. I mean, how hard is it to roll your eyes? It's not hard at all. And uh, we're, we're standing around. They're trying to get the, the shot together. And uh, Robin Williams starts to talk to me. And he's like, uh, you know, hey, I know when I started out, I had to do, you know, I was, I did stuff like this too. And I was like, oh yeah, Robin Williams thinks I'm cool. This is awesome. And he says, how is it in the suit? And I say, well, it's not so much the heat, it's the stupidity. And then Robin Williams rolls his eyes. And I was like, oh, that's what he wanted me to do. That's how you roll your eyes. Oh, man, this is the difference between you and I. Like, you're a real actor and I'm just a guy in a hot dog suit because you can roll your eyes right. That was what I should have done. But uh, he says, uh, he looks at me, he goes, well, uh, do you need anything? Uh, do you need any water? And I was like, yeah, actually, water would be nice. And I'm thinking he's going to, you know, wave over a PA or something and get me. Nope. Boom. Off like a shot. Robin Williams disappears. And out of this little face hole where I've got, you know, like a 30 degree viewing angle, I look over at the wardrobe woman and I'm like, is he going to go get me water? She's like, yeah, I think so. Okay. And then boom, comes right back with my water. And I'm like, Awesome. So, uh, yeah, Robin Williams got me water. It was, it was really cool. So now, after I've had my big close-up with Robin Williams, uh, it's the end of the day. It's like 16-hour day. We go, we, we take our costumes off, we do the whole thing, we pull the mutton chops off, whatever. Um, sure enough, the ham and the Oh, it was a ham. It wasn't a steak. It was a ham. Right. It was a ham and a cleaver come up to me and they're like, oh my God, we saw you talking to Robin Williams. Oh, really stupid bitch. That's how I'm going to refer to both of them now as stupid bitch. Really stupid bitch. Now, now I'm your best friend because I had a close up with Robin Williams. What, what do you think? I got ushered into Hollywood. You think he was like, yeah, hey, hot dog. Why don't you call me? We'll share an agent. We'll take lunch. Yeah, your people, my people. Ba bing, boom, bang. Ba ding, dong, ba 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 da 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 uh, you know, it, I, you're, you're, you really belong in Hollywood. You're so annoyingly transparent. So, um, we're getting, we're, we're taking our clothes off and the wardrobe people, hair and wardrobe people, if you want to know any gossip, those are the people you talk to because you spend a ton of time with these people and, you know, after, you, you feel like, you know, just to keep yourself interested, 
you know, you want to talk, you want to strike up a conversation, and they know all the gossip. So, um, you know, it was like, it was a really long day, and I guess after about 10 hours of this, this guy, one of the meat packers, walks up to her and says, uh, okay, I'm going to leave. And she's like, well, I don't think you can. I don't think anybody's been released yet. And he's like, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm going to leave. And he takes his lower lip and pulls it down to show her the inside of his lower lip. And it has fuck you tattooed on the inside. Now, this is a guy who clearly needs to say this to people a lot. And got to the point where he said, well, look, whispering it, no good. Uh, Giving people the finger, somebody from the distance can still see it. I need to be able to communicate this to folks at a moment's notice and have them be the only one who sees it. So as soon as she saw it, she was like, okay, bye, see you later. Uh, You know, and I don't even think he cared about getting his voucher signed or anything. He just split. But while we're standing there, uh, you know, having wardrobe help us off uh, with our costumes, um, uh, one of the other movies that they these particular wardrobe people had worked on that had also shot in San Francisco was, I think it was called Ed TV. Maybe I should look this up. Nah. It was a McConaughey movie where it's a rom-com, but he's getting filmed everywhere he goes, kind of like a Truman Show, real life sort of thing. And... Uh, she says the 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 ham or the cleaver or whoever says, um, uh, oh, you know, what was he like? Oh, I think he's so dreamy. And the uh, both of the the wardrobe people that were working us just look at each other and go, oh, honey, he's playing for the other team. And I just laughed hysterically because here's this. This was the bitch. Stupid wasn't around. The bitch was the one that was saying this. And I just, I saw her face drop. And, and I think she was even a little confused as to what they meant. And, and I was just, I was so loving it because I was like, ha ha, your dream boy is gay. Ha ha, suck it. Now, I'm not saying McConaughey is gay. The wardrobe women are saying McConaughey is gay. So the second day, uh, I will say there there were considerably fewer people that showed up. After the first 16-hour day, I think most people were like, yeah, I don't need to go through that again. I did it because, believe it or not, if you see the movie, the whole thing takes like, I don't know, a minute? But now we had to do the reverse shot where um, – Robin Williams is at the podium giving the big address to the meatpackers. And you can't see me at this point unless you get the letterboxed version. If you see it on TV, I get cropped out. Um, but on the letterbox, you can see me. I'm on the far right side, and you can't even tell it's me. You just see a dude in a hot dog suit. But every time people clap, I kind of bounce up and down because this is when you're an extra, you will do anything you can to get noticed. So, of course, you know, I'm bouncing up and down, uh, you know, trying to get noticed in the background, and it's, it's pretty sad. So, when I was in college, 
Um, you would always think San Francisco. I went to college in San Francisco. San Francisco, oh, always something to do. Always a, always a fun time. Well, there was one time in San Francisco where we had nothing to do. We were bored. Some of the people who we used to hang out with were not around. There weren't really any parties going on. And there was, it was me, Cheryl, and Jeremy. And we're all sitting in our little, our little dorm area there. And we were like, we should do something. It's Saturday night. Come on, man. Let's do something. And, uh, Jeremy, Jeremy, you know, he's pretty out there. He's, he's, uh, you know, always up for a party. I mean, this is the same guy who uh, got his friend to make him fake name tags. You know, like one would say like asparagus on it. One would say like cheese. I think he had a Satan name tag and it was all, it was cool because they were all like professionally made. It wasn't like, you know, just wearing like a sticker on your chest. And so, you know, hey, Jeremy's uh, a little bit nutty and he was like, Let's go to a, let's go to a strip club. Let's go to, let's go to a peep show booth. And we were like, uh, really? Yeah. All right. Cheryl, you're up for it. Okay. Great. Let's go to a peep show booth. And so I think I was driving because I wasn't drinking then yet, which was, it, which is crazy that I had the world's biggest car in San Francisco. And yet we went down to Broadway in San Francisco and uh, we know where all the strip clubs are and peep show booths and I didn't know, I thought that you had to be 21 to get in these places, but now I, I think you really just have to be 18 because they're not allowed to serve liquor at any of these places. So I, I'm pretty sure you could just be 18 and walk in. And obviously I was 18, but I didn't want to, I, I thought you had to be 21, so I didn't want to push it. So we went into one of these places with peep show booths. Um, I, I don't know if you've ever been to one of these things. It is really gross. I mean, the floor sticks, it's dark, um, and you don't know what's been going on. So we took our laundry money, and it's all quarter-driven, right? So you pop in quarters for as long as you want it to go. So we're, we're, we're we, three of us cram in to this little booth, and we pop in some quarters, uh, and the little window goes up. <laughs> And it's, it's us kind of like at floor height looking out onto a stage with like two kind of bored dancers just kind of, you know, shuffling to the music. And they see us. And they run over to us like we're in a fishbowl and they kind of like put their hands over their eyes so they can kind of see us because it's lighter in there than it is in here. Our room's really dark and they start like, you know, chattering away and they're like, oh my God, hey, look, there's three of them. Oh my God, you're doing something kinky. And I'm kind of feeling like, whoa, wait a minute here. I'm supposed to be looking at you. You're not supposed to be looking at me. This is really weird. I'm not, I'm not the one on stage here. You are. And they're like, oh my God, are you going to do something crazy and all this stuff? And then this one dancer looks over at Jeremy and she goes, no, wait a minute. I know you. And then Jeremy's like, yeah, 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 whatever. Everybody says that. I mean, yeah, yeah, you know me. Sure. Whatever. She goes, no, 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 no. I know you. You're cheese goes back down again we start freaking out because obviously she knew him and we're like oh my god this weird is she knows him and all this stuff and then this guy opens up the door like boom and and it was like and we instantly thought like oh we're in trouble we shouldn't all three be in here and then he looked at us kind of disappointed like oh shit i thought some really crazy times were going on there i want to see a sex show damn it slams the door and leaves and then we're just like okay 
Great capper of the evening. We got to go. Can't get any better for this. Thank you. Good night. Call it an evening. But speaking of Broadway, uh, I am not proud to say that I have uh, borrowed a joke uh, from somebody else and tried to pass it off as my own. Now, mind you, I did not do this in a professional setting. I used to, when I was in college uh, in San Francisco, I took this class called The Art of Comedy. And uh, there, w- there was a performance aspect to it. And uh, one of the assignments was write a character. And, um, you know, it didn't have to be – what the character was saying wasn't the point. It was more or less that the character was, you know, had a definite voice and personality. And so mine was the nervous character. And so I got up and I told this story – uh, about how, you know, my friends, they wanted to do something nice for me, but I was like, no. And, and, and they said, uh, let's take you out to a, a, a nice Broadway show. So my character says, um, Broadway in San Francisco is not quite the same as it is in New York. Sure, there are similarities, you know, bright lights, marquees. The smell of men enjoying themselves. And the entire audience uniformly groans all at once. Oh, God, it was so great. Just to get that kind of reaction out of a crowd just all at once and so definitively. Oh, I loved it. But anyway, that joke I stole from Ask Mr. Melman, um, which was a, a bit that David Letterman used to do 100 years ago when he had his NBC show. So, there are those people who say, this book changed my life. I've never had a book that changed my life, but I did have a movie. And in order to have these moments where something changes your life, I think you either have to be looking for it or at the very least accepting of it. So, um, I was watching The Fifth Element for the 10th time. And, and it gets to that scene where the alien is walking towards the priest as the doors are closing and the priest says to the alien, you can still make it. There's still time. And the alien looks back at him and says, time is not important. Only life is important. And up to that point, I had been notoriously cheap. And I thought at that moment, Why am I so cheap? And if you take out the word time and you put back in the word money, I thought, money's not important. Only life is important. And since then, I have become way less cheap. Now, still, I am occasionally bothered by, you know, missing out on a sale when I previously bought something. But then I just have to remind myself, money is not important. Only life is important. And how much are you going to ruin your life by agonizing over it by being cheap? So the story that I have told maybe the most times to myself is uh, the story where I met somebody famous on the street. And it for a while there, I was telling myself this story in the shower every night. And I was fixing it and refining it. And I'd tell it to people occasionally. But 
I don't know. I would tell it to myself as if I was on The Letterman Show. Because here's a here's a great piece of advice, which I think I mentioned in the advice podcast. If you're feeling down, pretend like you're being interviewed. Interviewed about whatever. Maybe even something you never did. Maybe you're a, a big movie star in this fantasy dream. But it just makes you feel better. You know, it makes you feel important. It makes you feel like everything you say has meaning. Because most of the time, the time we are depressed are over the times we feel powerless in our lives. So do it. And maybe that's why I did it. But for those of you who haven't heard this story, I'm going to tell it as if I really was on Letterman. I'm not going to do a bad Letterman impression, um, but I'm going to put in the music, I'm going to put in the clapping, I'm going to do everything as if it really was Letterman. Now, normally Letterman... Um, on Letterman, uh, Schaefer picks out a song that has something to do with your life or your name or your job or something like that as a clever pun. You know, Adam Carolla is on, he used to be on The Man Show, so Paul Schaefer might pick It's Raining Men, something like that. Also because he co-wrote Raining Men, and he gets even more money every time he plays it. But I'm not going to pick a song like that. I'm not going to pick Our House or uh, something like that. I want to pick the song that, you know, I I would have wanted if I could have picked any song. Oh, David Letterman. Wow. This is exciting. I, I am thrilled to be here. This is amazing. Uh, I, I know you used to do a, a little segment on your show called Brush with Greatness. I have my own Brush with Greatness I'd like to tell you about. Many years ago, uh, I was vacationing in Los Angeles, and I was at a, a pizza place on Melrose Avenue, and I see this Canadian walk by, and I think to myself, wait a minute, I know that guy. And then this lunkhead leans out of the pizza place and yells down the street at this guy, hey, dude, love your music. Now, I know what you're thinking. What is Brian Adams doing in Los Angeles? But no, you would be wrong. And I think to myself, no, this is not the way his fans are going to remember him. So I bolt out of the pizza place and I walk briskly down the street. Now, keep in mind, I was in Los Angeles because I was coming back from a vacation in Mexico and thought it would be fun to stop off in Los Angeles along the way. And while in Mexico, I got into an ATV accident. So I have a big scab running down the side of my face. I haven't shaved in a couple of days. I've got long hair, a baseball cap on, and I look a mess. But I am undaunted because one of my musical heroes is walking down the street and I want him to have a good impression of his fans. If only I had looked at the mirror and realized that was not going to be the case. So I get within six feet of him and I say, Mr. Schaefer. And Paul Schaefer turns around and looks at me as if I had just found his wallet. And... I stick out my hand because I don't know what to do. And he shakes my hand and I go and I say, oh, I'm such a fan. Uh, I, I am thrilled to meet you. Uh, and he goes, oh, okay, great, thanks. 
and I'm desperate to think of what to say. And I, I say, uh, you know, um, I, I got your album and I just love all the subtle nuances that are put in all of those songs and the production value is just so great. And he looks at me and he says, well, I guess you're the only one that heard it. <laughs> and now I'm thinking, great. Paul Schaefer thinks I'm cool. Big mistake. And I said, and it's such a shame that the day that it gets nominated for a Grammy, uh, they, they stop pressing the album. And he said, yeah, well, you know, they were changing record company presidents, and a lot of times stuff gets lost in the shuffle. And now I'm really riding high. So I look at him and I say, well, you don't need to tell me about the music industry. <laughs> right. Five-day growth, big scab running down the side of my face. Clearly a music industry professional. So... So after, after, after that gem of a statement, he kind of looks at me and he goes, well, I got to and sort of, you know, kind of motions like I got to go. And I, oh, oh, OK, sure, sure. And um, I knew I had a camera on me and I pull I reach into my pocket and I pull out a camera and I say, uh, but before we go. And he just looks at me and goes, oh, picture. Right. <laughs> so and and. We're on Melrose Avenue, right? One of the busier shopping streets in Los Angeles. Nobody around, right? Like tumbleweeds are rolling down Melrose. So I just sort of stand next to him and go, jeez, and click the picture. And, uh, I, I, and, and it's one of the better self portraits I've ever taken. So that is how I met Paul Schaefer. All right, so for our last story, uh, this one's not maybe as funny as some of the others, but I hope that everybody has a moment like this in their life. Um, I used to go to an improv class run by Jim Crana. Um, he was a voiceover personality, did a lot of radio commercials, a really smart, funny guy, and a really great improv teacher. And one of the way he set up his class was uh, the first half of the class, I think it was like a three hour class. And the first half of the class would be uh, nothing but sort of improv games. So if you're familiar with improv games, it's, you know, a three headed storyteller or a three headed expert or, um, you know, simple freeze tag or, you know, just all, all of these different games. And coming out of these games, People would set up premises and things would be established that in the second half of the class, people would reference back. So, you know, in three-headed scientist, um, you know, if or three-headed expert, somebody would say, you know, some ridiculous name of something and then that name would be brought back in the second half of the show. At some point during the first half, they had established uh, – they were doing some bit in which one of the improv people was supposed to be a car. And one person said, oh, well, the way you start the car is you just kick it. And they just kicked this poor person in the ass. But, you know, they were tough. They could take it. it was, a lot of these people were, were regulars, and so they, they knew each other pretty well, and they knew they could take it. Um, so – 
getting kicked in the ass <laughs> was the thing that carried through into the second half of the show. And the second half of the show uh, usually was pretty free form. This particular time, though, he broke us up into groups of three people in which the game is one person starts on stage and they sort of set the scene of what's going to happen in this. It's not, there are no recommendations from the crowd. There's nothing. It's just up to that person to what they're going to do. There's a second person who comes in. And then there's a third person who never comes in, but calls in uh, on their imaginary phone and relays some information that has happened off stage. One of the things about Jim Crana is he is, he's done this a long time. So the traditional things don't interest him anymore. Right. And this is what happens to a lot of alternative comedy and stuff like that is that at some point you've seen so much of the same thing that it's very, very hard to come up with anything new in that same style that impresses you. So you start to drift off in these very strange ways. Uh, I remember Jim saying at one point when he had his own improv group that they used to walk through the audience at the end of the show. Now, if you were to tell this to most people, they would they would assume the improv troupe would walk up and down the aisles. No, no, no. When I say walk through the crowd, I literally mean they would put their feet on the armrests of the, the theater seats in the crowd and walk through the crowd. And he said the audience hated it. Uh, but, you know, it was one of those things where they did it for them to keep the show interesting. So Jim gave the class a bit of direction, which was, you know, the second person who comes in, don't be so anxious to just run right in. Let the person on stage really sort of set the scene and develop it a little bit so we all know what's going on and what's going to happen. And so, you know, even as the second person, you can be more informed about the choices that you want to make. So it's our group comes up. It's me, Fred Wickham, and another guy named Fred, who was also a very well-established voiceover artist. And the three of us, of the people who were there that day, had probably been in that class the longest. And I was super excited to be with these guys, because they were all, you know, both of them were great, great improv people. So, Fred, uh, the voiceover guy, Fred, he's up first. And Fred's an older guy, and he... He maybe wasn't so comfortable being the sole focus of the attention, which, of course, as far as Jim was concerned, made it even better. Like, that really thrilled him to see a guy who was kind of out of his element and, and a guy who was usually used to being sort of the second guy to come in now was the first guy and really kind of swimming around. And, of course, um, I was supposed to be the second guy who comes in, and I took Mr. Crana's advice quite to heart and just let Fred do whatever for the longest time. I won't say he was floundering because he was, you know, such a pro, he wouldn't be floundering, but he was definitely uneasy with being there as, by himself for as long as he was. So then I came out and I sat down. I didn't say anything. Which, of course, now Fred is thinking, here I am. I'm going to help relieve the pressure of him carrying this soul scene by himself. No. And I just sat there 
And I looked at him and I didn't say anything. And I looked at him and I crossed my legs and I uncrossed my legs and I just looked at him. And then as it goes on, um, the phone rings from the guy from the off stage, you know, because that's what the third person does. He calls in and he says, ring, ring. And I pick up the phone as if it's one of those old timey, you know, handset in one hand, uh, mouthpiece in the other hand kind of phone. And I say, hello. And all he says is, let's get this over with. So I say, okay, I hang up the phone. I set it down. I stand over. I stand up. I bend over. And the other Fred walks up, kicks me in the ass. And Jim Crana says, and that's how it's done. That was the last improv class I took. Because I was like, I can't get any better than that, man. That's awesome. Of course, I did not do this all by my own. Without the two Freds helping me, there's no way we would have nailed it like we did. But with them... I feel like I was a part of it. I contributed something or actually lack of contributing something. But hey, man, it's like jazz. You know, it's what you don't play is just as important as what you do play. But I was thrilled that I could be a part of that group at that scene with those people. It made it all perfect. And to have the teacher, the guy who's been there for the longest saying, that's how it's done. That's it, man. Why, Why go back? Go out on a high note. And plus the fact that I really felt like I had mastered this bizarre art form that would only piss off a regular crowd. But of course, the class that I was doing it for really loved it. So as funny as it was to us, I felt like we were the only ones who would really be able to appreciate it. Unfortunately, Jim doesn't teach the class anymore. He retired after doing it for a billion years. And I don't blame him. I mean, I think he lived in Sacramento, and that drive was kind of a killer. But I'm really glad I had the opportunity while I had it. And I still, I still love feeling like I got it. You know, because so often in my life, I feel like I don't got it. To actually have somebody say to me, That was right. You did it. You did it as good as you could have done it. Wow. Okay. So I hope that everybody has a moment like that at some time in your life. And you can look back on it and not say, well, I'm not there anymore. But you can look back on it and say, I did it. I was there and I can do that again. Well, this podcast has probably taken me the longest to do out of any of them because, you know, the stories I tell, the stories have to be right. You know, it's not like just how I normally do this where I just ramble incessantly and, you know, yell off anything at the top of my head. I mean, the stories have to be like a story, beginning, middle, and end. They have to have, you know, the right beats in the right places and all that stuff. So I've had to, like, do some of these a couple of times. Plus, I started out and I was drinking, then I'm not drinking. And and then, um, and it's taken me so long to do this. Miriam has actually made it back from France. Stuck there a week, and I still couldn't get this done in time. Keep it positive, people. From the music of Bright Brown, and me, and Jim Crana, and Fred Wickham, And all the people I mentioned in all the stories today, let's do this one more time. Till then! (laughs) 